they would do three-point combos, which were local, distal, and remote. So one point was on the problem, one point was on a channel that fed the problem, and one point was not on an obvious channel that fed the problem, but was known to help that problem. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Tolerance leans on our strength, but empathy, that arises from our soft places. From being vulnerable enough so that when we taste the metallic sense of no way, that's not me and I will not abide this, that we can soften just enough to see life through the eyes of someone who stirs our reactivity to such a degree, all we can do is reflexively shut down with an emotional barrage of not me, no way, no questions, just no. Empathy is difficult. It might be the hardest emotional resource to develop. It takes tremendous inner resources to engage the inquiry of what do they see that I don't see? What do they believe that I don't believe? And what do they care about that I don't care about? It's easy to see another's actions and choices and have opinions about it, set ourselves apart, feel superior or not, put our beliefs up against theirs and watch them battle it out in our rationalizing mind, or discount what someone is feeling because we feel a different way. All of that will magnify the differences, and it's possible to learn something from differences. But empathy, that works another way. Empathy is not agreeing with someone else's thoughts, stance, or beliefs. It's seeing the world through their eyes. It's not abandoning our own perspective, but rather widening it enough to glimpse the truth of a situation through the mind and the heart of someone you might not even know how to start a conversation with. Empathy is soft, but it's far from weakness. It dials down reactivity, and it can bridge chasms of differences with respect and understanding. Empathy is not the same as agreement, and it's not to be confused with tolerance, sympathy, or acceptance either. You don't need to agree to understand. You just need for a moment to understand someone from their own point of view. It might be one of the most difficult things we can do as humans. Tolerance is much easier. You simply agree to disagree. Empathy requires the ability to hold our own feelings and thoughts with a firm enough hand to know our own ground and loose enough to feel what it is to be just below the skin of another. It takes a kind of ferocity and a willingness to see how others see you as wrong without engaging the flywheel of rationale and justification. This is high-level gong fu because it's not about strength over others, but rather power over the reactive parts of ourselves. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. 
Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change first the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. I always enjoy talking with those in our profession who started down the path of Chinese medicine way before there was a path to follow here in the West. Jake's perspectives on medicine come from decades of his own inquiry and practice. Let's get into it. Jake Pratkin, welcome to Geological. Glad to be here, Michael. Glad to have you here. We had we had a few technical things going on, so it's uh, it's taken us a little while, but we finally have you here on Geological, and we have gotten to know each other a little bit already because we worked through some stuff. That's that was kind of fun. You told me that you've been doing Chinese medicine for like almost ever since the 70s right i've been in practice 40 years last august holy smokes now, all right 41 years last August. 41 years all right yeah. it's getting worse so i mean back in the 70s chinese medicine how did that happen 
Well, I was what they call one of the early adapters. And I'll give my own Genesis story if I can get a chance. But yeah, no, I mean, tell us about it. I mean, early adapter, I, I would think in the 70s, you were not just an early adapter. You were kind of like a freak of nature. Yeah. My father didn't see it. <laughs> he didn't see where it was going. This might be culturally inappropriate, but at the time he said, Jake, you'll make more money running a Chinese laundry. <laughs> it would be inappropriate now, but 40 years ago, it was probably par for the course, you know. I had wanted to go to medical school. I had wanted to be a doctor ever since fourth grade when I identified that as my career path. I was inspired by my own pediatrician who I thought was a saint and who encouraged me to go into medicine. And then I was inspired by figures like Albert Schweitzer and humanitarian doctors. So it was always my path. But uh, it's true. I started in Chinese medicine early. I started studying it in 74, 75, started practicing charging money in 78. How do you start studying Chinese medicine in the 70s? There's no schools. I found a Korean acupuncturist who I apprenticed with for over seven years. You know, and I got into herbs later. And I was arrested for practicing medicine without a license in Chicago in 1984. And they took me out in handcuffs and there was television cameras there. And they said, what do you say to the charge that you're practicing medicine without a license? I said, it's absurd. There's not a single medical school that teaches acupuncture. This is not the practice of medicine. I said, what I should be charged with is practicing acupuncture without a license. And so the state needs to put that in place. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Troublemaker. I had my five minutes, you know. They threw me in Cook County Jail for 24 hours, which was another experience, you know. That was pretty interesting. Hey, Doc. Hey, Doc. This acupuncture. Does it work for the Joneses, man? Because I got the Joneses really bad, man. Can you help me? <laughs> so, yeah, it was. A, I was glad to leave that place, actually. I made some friends, though. Yeah. Did, so did you like do some acupressure or something? Did you help these guys out? I was in isolation. I, nobody could oh, see anybody. There was okay. only voices. All right. That's another story. That would be a nice podcast. I mean, Chicago. it's kind of like right now. We're in isolation, only voices. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so it was sort of my path. It was my destiny, and I got into it early. And after doing straight-up acupuncture for, I don't know, four years, I realized that if people had low chi, you couldn't icon at that time, really use acupuncture to raise their chi level. So first I got into diet as a therapy, macrobiotics. I became a, I got deep into that for a couple of years and then realized people just don't want to do that. They just don't want to do that. So then, so they, then I got into don't. herbs. Yeah. So then I got into herbs and I studied herbs first in a Chinatown, you know, herb store. And at the, and where's this? Is this Chicago? Chicago. This is okay. Chicago. I, I was from Madison, Wisconsin, but but I did my studies in Chicago. Dr. Right. Moon was in Chicago. So yeah. how did you how did you meet this Dr. Moon? Well, it came into my Tai Chi group. And there was a couple other guys in Tai Chi that wanted to learn acupuncture. And they told me about him. It's a long story. I like to give the whole story. I mean, most people know me as an herbalist because I wrote the, the books on Chinese patent medicines. And, and I studied in China herbal medicine. And I really... Um, consider myself a very good herbalist and, and kind of an authority on the products, 
when people are interested in, well, where do you go when you want to talk about the products? They go to my books. And and I'm very happy. I love Chinese herbs. However, my other life in Oriental medicine is in Japanese meridian therapy. And for me, the Japanese meridian therapy goes back to Qigong. And my Qigong goes back to my Tai Chi. And even to this day, when I'm working needles on meridian therapy, I'm using qi. I'm using qi through my hands to try to empower the needles and try to do what I'm trying to do. And I felt I was led to these teachers. Dr. Moon was very big on qigong and how to use qigong with the needles. So I was given teachers very early that were just, I, they came from the sky. You know, it was really a destiny. It wasn't it wasn't like I wasn't looking for it. I was looking. And I think my intention was so deep to find that I was given a very good teacher in Tai Chi Chuan. I was given a very good teacher in acupuncture. And later on, I had very good teachers in Chinese herbal medicine. So, but it all goes back. <laughs> this is where the part of the movie, the pages start flipping backwards or the calendar, <laughs> the calendar sheets the calendar. fall off the calendar, you know, <laughs> you go back and it all started back. All started back with your pediatrician. It all started with the Vietnam War. I was a child of the Vietnam War era. That was the defining moment of my life and still is, you know, and we're, we're of a similar generation that way. Yeah. When I meet someone my age within a year or so, I'll just say, oh, same war, different battalion. And they'll totally get it. It was a cultural war. And no matter what you were doing at that time, you were doing something. So the Vietnam War was very shocking and it was very involving and it was very life-changing. So before the Vietnam War, I was a pretty straight kid and I was going to go do medicine and no ifs, ands, and buts. And I started by majoring in, in biology. Then during the war, it's not that I questioned medicine as a path, but it freed you up to start studying other things. And I started studying Western. I wanted philosophy. And I started studying Western philosophy. And that was just not very satisfying. And then slowly, Oriental philosophy started to make its appearances. And you had avenues to, to pursue that uh, Asian philosophy. You know, So I started to switch. And, and the real turning point was during the war at the University of Wisconsin, the teachers were very divided. So those who were against the war were all the people in the humanities and everybody in biology, which was my major. The chemistry department, however, was very much for the war because that's where the jobs were. Dow Chemical was recruiting and, and all the chemical companies were recruiting. And I never met a chemistry teacher or TA that wasn't pro-war at the time. Now we're talking about 1967. So the passions were cranking up and people were really taking sides. They really were. Yeah. The country yeah. was very divided. Yeah. And so these chemistry TAs, you know, if they thought you were against the war, they made your life difficult. And I, and I would think these TAs are such P-R-I-C-K-S's, you know, they, they, they're really, I mean, and then I started to look at medicine as basically being run by the chemists, not the biologists, you know, pharmaceutical medicine. And I just had this lock against pharmaceutical medicine. I just thought the chemists are running medicine here and it's not right. There's something not right. It's very commercially oriented. You can't pronounce anything. You can't remember the names of anything. 
And I had just started to develop this distance from pharmaceutical medicine. And the more I looked, medicine was run by pharmaceuticals, except for emergency medicine and surgery. So all my friends, you know, back then they were recruiting liberal arts majors and and the kind of doctor that, that was recruited at that time was not the technocrat that we have now. It was the broad minded gentleman of the world kind of thing, you know, and Anyway, I was playing the medical field to go, to not go, to go, to not go. As the war cranked up and, and and things ended, I took a hiatus after college and really became a hippie on a hippie commune in Virginia. I was really reached a crunch by about 72 with the Nixon things. You have no idea how traumatic all that was, the Watergate stuff and and. To, and I really was reaching a crutch. I didn't know what to do with my life. I decided not to go to medical school. I had majored in biology, and I ended up doing uh, research in, in primate uh, behavior in a, in a wildlife area in the Caribbean, and that was really nice. And I just didn't know where to go, you know. And to be honest, my first experiences were on some drugs that I won't name which ones. And I had an experience where I was seeing energy balls firing towards me. And I started doing what later I realized was like a Tai Chi reaction. So I would see energy balls coming out of the horizon and coming towards me. And at the last minute, I would swivel and get it out of the way. And the last, they were shooting balls at me of light. Okay, I'll admit this was a drug-induced experience, but, but it was transformational. I said, this is cool. What is this? This is cool. What is this? Yeah. And you're a biology guy. You're not a chemistry guy. So you you have you have that perspective that comes in. Yeah. I don't know where the biology fits in, but well, it sounds like the biology fits in. You you went the path of biology, which to me makes a lot of sense why you would have been drawn to the East Asian medicine. Because it's not chemistry. It's about it's about how life works. Right. But at that time, I didn't know anything about East Asian medicine. No, but you had that glimpse. You had that that sense. You wanted to go the biology route, not the chemistry route. True. That's what you're interested in. How life works. Yeah. In another life, I would have ended up in evolutionary biology. I, I'm still fascinated by findings of prehistoric people and and how long ago they lived and how they lived. And I just I'm, I'm just very attracted to that kind of stuff, you know. And I and so. Yeah, I, I love life. I mean, I love things that grew and died. And when I was a kid, I was dissecting as many animals as I could find. I'd love to dissect and look in there and see how it was laid out. So anyway, this energy experience changed my life. And I thought, what is this? And then some people came through the commune who were Tai Chi people, and a man and a woman, and they did this Tai Chi dance together. And I said, I want to learn that. What is that? Around that time, I started studying Chinese philosophy as much as I could get, especially the I Ching. I really got into the I Ching in a very deep way. Eventually, I translated a, a copy of it, which was illustrated by a Chinese calligrapher, which was never published. But I was very attracted to I Ching. And of course, I was reading the Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi and the other Taoist texts, and they were, it was just like a, a key into a lock. It just totally fit. And I said, what is this? What is this? And for me, the whole thing was learn Tai Chi, learn Tai Chi, learn Tai Chi. And 
my Jewish middle class upbringing said, "What are you well, doing?" Do, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but it says, "How's the Tai Chi guy make a living?" And and the answer was, they don't. Well, what did they do to make a living? They went into Chinese medicine. They went into acupuncture. I didn't know acupuncture. They went into Chinese medicine. Actually, I didn't know acupuncture because in 72, James Reston had his appendix appendectomy with with acupuncture analgesia. So I had heard of it. And I said, they made their living by doing Chinese medicine. And I said, I have to learn this. So I went back to the University of Wisconsin. I enrolled in a master's program, basically in Chinese philosophy. At that time, you could not go to China. It was no way. And I didn't want to go to Taiwan because it was run by the nationalists who were very fascistic. And there was an antidote to where a friend of mine who was Chinese at the University of Wisconsin went back home and she was arrested at the airplane because she had gone to pro-China meetings in Madison. And they knew it. Some other Taiwan person dropped a dime on her. And she was arrested getting off the airplane. We never heard of her again. This was under Chiang Kai-shek. This was not a friendly regime. This was an autocratic, dictatorial regime like Kim Il-jong. And the nationalists just, you know, were were glove and fist. I said, I don't want to support that. I don't want to go to Taiwan at that time. Now, if I did, my life would have been different. But I did not want to go to Taiwan. And purely for I was, I like China. I wanted to go to China. I will wait until I can go to China. So I stayed doing my master's, uh, Chinese philosophy. And at that time, I was exposed to Tai Chi. And I was, uh, my Chinese professors at the university were studying with a man in Chicago who I ended up studying with. And, and so I did a lot of commuting to, to Chicago to do this Tai Chi training. You were, you were dedicated. Yeah. Well, I was not only dedicated, I was given a prince of a teacher, Wayson Liao is, is very famous. And, and we got the authentic stuff. Tai Chi, not as what I call old ladies, you know, moving their arms, but real internal, real internal work with Qigong. And so Master Liao turned me on to that. And then down there, I met Dr. Moon. And Dr. Moon really was my first real Qigong teacher. And he was a meridian therapist from the get-go. He uh, was Korean and Korea was run by the Japanese from 1905 until 45. And a lot of the acupuncture in Korea, they had a pre-existing acupuncture with a lot of mocks and stuff. But but the Japanese system of meridian therapy really he got into. So I got into it. He mm-hmm. kept saying So that so that was an import from Japan because of their occupation. Correct. Kind of in some ways that they do herbs in Taiwan. They had such an influence from Japan, similar time frame. And, and a lot of the compo really infuses how the Taiwanese think about and practice their medicine there. With well, herbs. you know why? It's because the Japanese didn't have the Chinese herbs, but they occupied Taiwan and Taiwan did have the Chinese herbs. So they made their compo factories in Taiwan because that's where the herbs were. And Taiwan got it from Hong Kong and China. So, well, before you know the separation, Taiwan had access to everything from China. So the Japanese built their compo factories in Taiwan. And and that's how compo took off. It's fascinating, isn't it? How, you know, we can look at world events, some of them really horrendous, like, you know, earlier part of last century with, you know, occupations and wars and things like that. And, and yet it, it, it really, because of the influences of cultures bumping up against each other, 
people learning different kinds of medicines from different countries, you can have this Korean teacher who knew Japanese meridian therapy. Correct. Because a lot of Korean acupuncture at the time was just palpatory, palpation, you know, do moxa where it hurts kind of thing. No real philosophical systems. Now, there are in Korea. This is not to berate it. But the Japanese, the meridian therapy school that is current really didn't start until the 1930s. There were, yes, it was based on the Nanjing, but there really wasn't practice. The Chinese never practiced Nanjing medicine until the Japanese revived it in the 1930s. And that got exported to Korea at the time my teacher was studying. So I got into this meridian therapy day one. Later on, I would, when I started to study Chinese acupuncture, I would say to Dr. Moon, well, what about wind damp? And what about, you know, Shaoyang states? And what about all that? And he, he said, oh, just because it's written in a book 500 years ago doesn't mean it's valuable. Doesn't mean it's worth anything. You know, he was such a stickler about meridian therapy. Right. I mean, it was his thing, right? Yeah. And he could yeah. make it work. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a little curious. This, this may be a little bit of a sidebar, but meridian therapy, I've got a few ideas of what that might mean. I mean, I've, I, I studied a little bit of Japanese acupuncture, but I just want to make sure that we're, we're talking about the same thing. And especially as you just said, you were talking to your teacher about, well, what about wind damp and this and that? So the acupuncture that most folks learn in school these days, you know, kind of a TCM flavor. How is <laughs> it's not just a flavor? Well, it's a it's a vat of soup. <laughs> it's a, okay, it's a soup. It's a kind of a soup. It's a big vat. But, but yeah. tell us a little bit about meridian therapy. How is this work that you learned from the get go different than what people might be studying today? Well, TCM. Everybody who studies, who goes to a, an American-based TCM school is studying TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Now, Or some people call it textbook Chinese medicine. They can call it that. It's got a lot of names, you know. And, and I call it Zongfu acupuncture, you know, or eight-category acupuncture. Now, in China before 1950, there was many schools of acupuncture including Nanjing acupuncture. Nanjing was the book written in the third century AD that really was only about acupuncture meridians. It was only about acupuncture points. And they never talked about Zongfu. And they never talked about eight categories. Everything was meridians. And the principle of Nanjing acupuncture is some channels will be excess, some channels will be deficient. And if you know what they are and you balance that. You feed the excess into the deficient. If you balance that, the body will heal very much faster. Now, the TCM acupuncture that we know today is really a point prescription acupuncture. You have sore throat, combine these three points. Everything's a three-point combo. You have epigastric pain, use pericardium 6, uh, REN12, and stomach 36. They would do three-point combos, which were local, distal, and remote. So one point was on the problem, one point was on a channel that fed the problem, and one point was not on an obvious channel that fed the problem, but was known to help that problem. So pericardium 6 is known to help epigastric, even though it's not on the pathway where stomach channel is, right? So these three-point combos are meant to address isolated problems. It works great if you have an isolated problem. And in China, where I studied for a year, 
everybody had isolated problems because they knew when to come in, you know. They didn't have layered problems because they took care of it before it became layered. But in America, a new patient has five complaints. They have insomnia, and they have constipation, they have belly aches, and they have PMS, and they have all this stuff. And it's like, well, what do you concentrate on? You can't do a three-point on every one of those. So it's very bulky, you know. And also in China, it works because they're coming in two or three times a week. So in meridian therapy, it's balance the channels. When I was in my first year of practice, and I'm back in Madison, Wisconsin, and a woman with diabetes type 1 comes in, and I called Dr. Moon on the telephone, and I said, Dr. Moon, I have a patient with diabetes type 1. What, what's, what's the special points we use? And he goes, <laughs> <laughs> and, he goes and he slaps you upside the head and said, no special points. Basically, yes. he, he said, you know, uh, not, you know, notwithstanding, I was probably interrupting him during a treatment. And he said, I taught you. And I said, no, 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 we never discussed diabetes type 1. He said, I taught you. Balance the meridians. And he clunked down the phone. Because <laughs> his belief was balancing the channel fixes everything. And later on, we, we learned about root and branch. So the root is balancing the channels, the branch is then addressing the complaint. So like the Worsley School, for example, came out of meridian therapy, but they've only concentrated on the root imbalance. They never concentrated on the branch to their deficit, you know? So they, and they never got the needle technique because they just got the, the theory, but they never got the needle technique. Hello everyone, Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Tell me about the needle technique. It sounds like this piece is really important. It's not just the point, but there's something else going on here. Chinese needling is very deep and very strong, and it's really good for musculoskeletal complexes of holding patterns and trigger points. It's great. It's better than Japanese meridian therapy for musculoskeletal pain and, and contraction and holding the body. It's wonderful. The systems of Matt Callison and Whit Reeves, they're great. They're really effective. The meridian therapy is better for internal problems than chronic problems. So Chinese needling goes very deep. And in China, the patient feels that if they don't feel the duchi, it's not going to be effective. Now, the Japanese have the complete opposite opinion. Their feeling is if you feel the needle, it's not a good practitioner. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> now, how they get this is they use very thin needles and they don't go very deep. For, for 
controlling the meridians, all of it's done on the five element points below the elbows and below the knees, all of it. And you go in very superficially, two, three millimeters. And you use your, your needle technique or Qigong to, to, to fill that channel up or to, or to move it down. And so the Japanese think, if I felt the needle, he's not good. He doesn't know what he's doing. But also we use very thin needles and we don't go in very deep. So, I mean, I get it with the, uh, I know culturally the Chinese like heavy stimulation. Occasionally I will see Chinese patients. And I know with them, I have to use a heavy hand or they won't think I know what I'm doing. Exactly. Right. It's like exactly. I have to levitate them from the table. I, have, I tend to have a, a, a more gentle hand. Yeah, it's not that people don't feel anything, but you know, I wouldn't say acupuncture sensation equals pain. But with my Chinese patients, I yes, it, if they are not feeling it, then they're not trusting it. Oh, in China, in China, they don't want to be treated by the Americans. They just thought it wasn't going to be a good treatment. Well, there's there's that as well, but we're not going to get into that because we already started stepping into cultural problems earlier in the show. So. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but it, but there is that. It's it's very interesting. But I'm going to sidestep that for the moment. What I am curious about is how these needles that are fairly superficial, they're very comfortable. You may not even feel the needle. How it goes so deep. And how these things work when you're actually working with problems that are deep and internal, like type one diabetes. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause I think us Americans are not so different from the Chinese in a way we think more is gooder, harder is better. Right. Mm -hmm. Doc, mm -hmm. my back hurts, load me up with needles. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to get your perspective on how sometimes something simple, focused, maybe even gentle, can get such a big bang? Well, that's a good question. There's two aspects to it. One of them is you have to really believe in the channels and the meridians, that if you're, if you're affecting excess and deficiency, then it's going to have an effect deeper in the body. So there has to be that belief. You cannot do Japanese acupuncture without believing in the, in the meridians or believing in the channels. Now, there are a lot of good Chinese practitioners. It's all about the points, and it's all about the location. It's all about what they do to that point. And, and you don't really need the meridians. I mean, you watch the work of Whit Reeves or Matt Callison. They're not using distal points that much. They're mostly doing their effectiveness locally at what they're doing with the local tissue. And they're mostly treating musculoskeletal problems. Now, if you have palpitations, that's due to a heart yin deficiency or pericardium deficiency, you want to boost that energy up. You know, we think the palpitations are coming from deficiency in that channel. So you want to boost it up. So you have to understand that meridians, especially below the elbow and below the knees, have a chimney that goes up to the surface. And you really only have to pierce the top of that surface to affect the chi in that channel. You don't have to go down to the level of the meridian. You just have to be on the right point. And the other thing is you have to know which way the vortex goes. So if we're working the point, we have to feel which way is the vortex going? Is it going, you know, a little bit to the left? Is it going to the right? Where's the vortex? And you got to have the needle follow that vortex. Okay, this is where I want to be. Now I'm going to put chi into that, to that channel. I'm either going to put in or take out. So needle placement is super 
hypercritical. Super hypercritical. Mm-hmm. This Japanese teacher remarked that he was amazed in China. He watched a doctor treat the shoulder and never once feel the skin. He was just had a handful of needles and was throwing them into different spots around this area. And to the Japanese guy, it was like, you can't put a needle in if you haven't felt it first. You want to feel if it's mushy. You want to feel if it's hard. You want to feel where the vortex goes. So once you're in there now, how do you put chi in if you're going to tonify? Well, for most Japanese, it's their, it's their needling technique. They'll move their fingers very fast. You know, they'll scrape in a certain way. But because of my Qigong training, I just want to get in the point, and then I'm going to work from my Dantian, put energy through my hands, down the needle, up the channel. And I'm going to fill it up if that's what it needs. Now, some points we need to sedate. So it's the opposite. We get in there, we find it. Now we're going to pull it out. We're going to pull it into the hands, into the palms. We're going to pull that excess out. That's basic uh, needle technique in, in Japanese style for me. My teacher, Shudo Denmai, was a very fast twirling of the fingers, super fast twirling, you know. And you watch some of the needle techniques of the Japanese. It's extraordinary, you know, extraordinary. But they're very superficial, you know, very superficial needling because you're on the chimney. The Chinese word shue, which we translate as a hole or a point, really means chimney. That word means chimney. So you have to imagine the chimney's going into the meridian and, that, and, and we're affecting the meridian by just getting the top of the chimney. Are we putting in or taking out? Everything we do is either tonification or sedation. Makes me think about like when you've got a straw in water and you put your finger on the straw, you can like pull up the straw and it, you know, it's got water in it. Yeah. I mean, that's just like a little bit of, of pressure that's creating a big effect. You can like pull water out of a, a cup, but then you take your finger off all the water falls out. It sounds like you're on that same kind of a very influential point where you can get a lot of dynamic happening with just a little bit of stimulation. What the classics did teach hundreds of years ago is that this point tonifies, this point sedates, this point connects to its brother channel. You know, all those point indications, I think they're true. You know, I think they're true. I've got a question about this vortex. I love that <laughs> word. First of all, I yeah. love the word vortex. I've yeah. never heard anyone talk about Chinese medicine as a vortex. So that's got my attention. But I've also had teachers, some Japanese, some just, you know, through other traditions, also talk about that, okay, there's the channel, there's the point, there's the way you interact with the point. There's like, there's a place where there's a certain angle. It's like, it'll click in, you click into something. And so when I hear you talk about vortex in a certain angle and in a way of getting at it, you know, you can get a big effect because you're in the, exactly the right spot and in exactly the right way and the right yeah. direction. So yeah. how do you find these points this way? This is not just like, oh, I'm measuring up three sun. What are you doing that lets you find a point with that kind of a specificity? All right. I got to tell you that every really experienced acupuncturist of any nationality gets this after 10, 20 years. They just do. Their fingers have become their instruments. And there isn't an experienced acupuncturist that doesn't feel the point. Not one. If they're doing it, they're fooling themselves and they may not get strong effects. Every good acupuncturist knows what they're doing with their fingers, I think. Sometimes they're looking for hardening. Sometimes they're looking for soft and depth. And 
But everyone has experienced this. These are our instruments, our fingers. And that's why the idea of doing acupuncture with gloves on is kind of like, wow, <laughs> that's an idea, you know. But it really depends. When, when I studied with Dr. Moon, he would feel a point and he would know if it was excess or deficient. And I thought, wow, I hope I get that ability one day, you know. But I have that ability now. For me, the intermediary training was I muscle test my own fingers. I do an O-ring test on myself, and that's how I would find points that needed to be treated. Then once you feel the point, then you're trying to feel the vortex. That's not due to muscle testing. That's just due to your sense of touch. And so you're feeling hard, soft. But I know if a point, I don't put a needle in unless the body tells me I need a needle at that place. I muscle test every point before I put a needle in, mostly. Mostly. I want to know, is that really weak? Is it really excessive? There's different ways to know. What's this O-ring thing? Well, it's, it's my thing, uh, but it came down to the Japanese. They would test the O-ring of the patient. They would have the patient put their thumb and pinky together, and they would try to pull apart. You know, But it's too variable. Every patient's different. You know, And there's psychological aspects. Tough guys don't want to get weak. Uh, the weak people want to be confirmed that they're weak. You know, It's not accurate. So I train myself to read my own fingers all the time. And I, I train people. I have articles on my website, how to muscle test using O-ring testing, your own O-ring, and how to train yourself using a battery to, to test yourself. So I have that in an article on my site, and, and I think it's a great gift. And I, I taught for years. You know, I'm, I've taught for 30 years. And whenever I taught acupuncture, I always taught muscle testing, and only 15% would get it. Or would persevere at it enough to get it. Sometimes it takes six months to perfect it. Some people get it quickly. Six months but, sounds like a short amount of time to me for some reason. Yeah, but think about that. It. That's just me. I'm I'm a slow learner. I had a Japanese acupuncture <laughs> teacher when I was in school. Yeah. Um, who was really quite extraordinary. And I remember that he would do this this kind it was a kind of muscle testing thing. It was he'd like pay attention to the friction in his fingers. Yeah, that's he, another he Japanese his, thing. He'd, he'd put one finger on a point and then he'd like test the friction is and he was just like whoa this guy i mean it was amazing watching so your that body be, your body becomes the instrument your you know friction is the yeah the, the friction is one way pressing and releasing you can do there's a lot of different techniques but you got to trust yourself you know and you got to have faith that this is going to work a lot of people say well i don't know if this is true or not but if they they really I do it because you need the results. It's not to prove you can do it. You need the results. So once you master How, that. I'm sorry, so, so quick question. This is not a small question. How do you learn to trust yourself? Well, that's another seminar. You're going to have to get another person interview on that one. I have no idea how to answer that one. <laughs> how did you learn to trust yourself? I had to. I needed results. I needed results. Everything that's driven me in study is because I need results. I kept going to the next thing because I wasn't there. Acupuncture alone would not build chi. I needed macrobiotic diet. People wouldn't do macrobiotic diet. That's how I got into herbs. You keep pushing yourself. You got to find your limits and say, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And then you go out and learn something that'll help you do that. I'm so glad that we started with how you got into this. Because this is what you've been doing all along. You've been, you've had this sort of inquisitive, how's this thing working? How does this fit sort of perspective since the very beginning? Yeah, because part of me is a skeptic. 
Yeah, you know, part, part of me is a scientific, too. Yeah, scientific skeptic. Yeah. You know? I think I mean, it's really people, helpful. Well, people that do, you know, borderline things, I go, well, how do you know that's true or not? How do you know? Even now with what I'm doing, I have to know my patients are getting better. And the, the reality is most of them get better. And I always get obsessed with the ones that aren't getting better. Why aren't they getting better? What am I doing right. wrong? What, what, yeah. what am I not here? doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of ignore the successes, but I get really bent out of shape by the, by the non-successes, you know? Well, it's, yeah. it, it'll, it'll keep you interested. That's for sure. And it keeps you honest. Well, I, you know, thank you. I, that's the other thing. I, I think it keeps us honest. I often have patients ask me, you know, does this stuff really work? And, and my answer is usually, well, it works often enough that it's worth getting out of bed in the morning to do it. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Well, but it's true. I mean, and I'm a little bit like you in that way. Nice Jewish boy goes into acupuncture, except I wasn't interested in medicine in the beginning. That that came way, way later. But this thing about the stuff that works is like, great, it works, and I'm glad to know it works, and you know that's nice. But the stuff that's not working, yeah, that's you got to push that, yourself. That's where yeah. the learning is. Exactly, you have to look. You know, every every art that's out there, I went to at least a weekend workshop on. I know what everything is, so I I feel like I can judge things based on. Well, okay, I tried to study it, and I just didn't get out of it as much as they said that I would get out of it. So having an open, inquisitive mind is, has been better for me than people like certain acupuncture schools, you know, Taoist five element schools that don't want to look beyond their blinders. They just want to stick with what they were taught, have no inquisitiveness whatsoever. You know? Well, some of us are, are curious to see what, what's in the weeds over there, you know, like, like to push out beyond the boundaries. And, you know, the thing about skepticism, I want to come back to that because I think it's really helpful. I think it's super helpful. You know, Richard Feynman, the famous physicist from last century, has this quote that I love dearly. He says, you must not be fooled and you are the easiest person to fool. Right? I mean, I think it's really easy to believe our own bullshit. Yeah. And, And it's really easy to go, oh, I think it works like this. And then we use our cognitive bias to not see where it's not working and to only notice where it is. You know, um, one of your fellow Coloradans who's no longer with us, sadly, Chip Chase, used to talk about, take whatever great pet theory you've got right now and try to prove it wrong. You know, when I hear you talk about being skeptical, uh, it, it reminds me of that and it reminds me that it's really useful to see if we can somehow look where we kind of don't want to look, but we're being asked to look. And it sounds like when you run into patients that are difficult to treat, you don't know what to do, it fires that up for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if fire up's the word, but you know, you want successes. And I, I sometimes say, if it looks easy, it's going to be hard. And if it looks hard, it's going to be easy, you know? One time uh, I sent a, uh, a patient of mine went to, I don't know, a rheumatologist. He called me. No doctors ever called me. He called me and he said, I, I, I really like what you did for my patient. And I want to refer some patients. Tell me what you're good at. And I said, look, if it's easy for you, it's easy for me. If it's hard for you, it's going to be hard for me. 
<laughs> what I said. You know, it's like, what are you going to send me? I mean, you're going to send me the hardest stuff that I won't be able to touch. You know, that's what they do. You know, they they send you either the patients that they're so hard, but mostly they send patients they don't like working with because of personality reasons. So one well, doctor or, or or patients they don't know how to treat. They've not had. You know, all doctors want to feel like they're doing a good job. And sometimes if you're not helping someone, it's like, well, why don't you go try this? I don't got nothing. Not that often. Doctors don't refer very often, especially to TCMers. You know, it's very rare, you know. But this one guy used to refer to me all the time. And I thought, this is going to be a problem patient. He just gets rid of all of his problem patients and gives and sends them to me. You know, not because I can help them, but because he doesn't want to deal with them anymore. (laughs) Have you been able to help them? Yeah, some of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we treat a lot of stuff that MDs don't know how to treat. I mean, that's our bread and butter. But the really hard stuff is not going to be any. It's not going hard be stuff is hard but stuff. It's hard stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and so you help what you can. And what I would say to people that are listening is find out what you're good at and go deeper into that area. You know, if you're really good with pregnancy and obstetrics, do that. If you're really good with gynecology, do that. Try to specialize. And find out what you're really good at and try to attract those patients instead of trying to get good at stuff you're not good at. Well, on my website, I list all these conditions that I'm not good at treating. And (laughs) I do. I list these are things I can help and here's the things I'm not able to help. And the stuff I'm not able to help is mostly neurologic, you know, Parkinson's and stroke and and, and MS and those things. I'm not going to have much to offer those people. So I want to just tell them up front, I'm not very successful at this. Although I'll give you names of people that supposedly are, you know, but I'm not. But on That's the other great. Hand, I don't know any practitioners that list what they're not good at. That's a, <laughs> that's a great angle. Well, I've had patients come in and say, well, the reason I came in is I saw you listed the stuff you're not good at. So I figured you must be honest. <laughs> No, oh, I, I think it's really, I think it's really powerful. I know that I have seen, uh, like people doing internet marketing for this, that, or the other thing. And the ones that I really respect are the ones who go, this is not for you. If blah, 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 blah. And they, and they let you know up front. Yeah. If you think this is going to give you that, no, don't waste your time and please don't waste your money. I think, I think there's a lot to be said for people that know their work well enough and are comfortable enough with what we can do that we can go, nope, I don't do this. People call me and ask about smoking cessation. Don't do it. Why? All right. I, why? Yeah. I've, I've never been successful at it. I can't, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I know acupuncture is supposed to make people stop smoking. I have found I can never get acupuncture to make people do something that they don't actually want to do. Yeah. I agree right? with you. Acupuncture for weight loss. Can you make me lose weight? No. Yeah, there's there's a single needle tri- technique that does that, you know. I you do, don't you do, know that one. You don't know that one? You, you do do 26 and rent 24. And then they can open their mouth. And then twist it. <laughs> twist it. <laughs> it always works. <laughs> what, I, what I've told people about smoking, I said, look, if you want to quit, everything works. If you don't want to quit, nothing works. Nothing works. That's great. I'm I'm taking what you just said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you really want to quit, you'll quit. If you don't want to quit, forget it. Don't spend money on it. If you, know? you want to quit, everything works. If you don't want to quit, nothing works. Yeah. There yeah. you go. There yeah. you go. Quote you can go home with. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, about Japanese meridian balancing. Okay, so I've revived. I do a system now which is a revision of uh, something that happened in the 20th century. 
And it started with Yoshio Monica in Japan, and it followed with his people. And finally, it ended there with Mikishima. And Mikishima was in California, and I studied with him in the early 90s. And he taught this system. He called it SAT therapy, somato-auricular therapy. But it really took the word, the works of what came before him of how to balance the channels. And what they looked for was to balance. Most meridian therapy just balances the primary channels. You know, what's excess, what's deficient. Let's fix it in an efficient way. Yeah, I mean, you can, get, you can go a long way with that, right? Totally. I did for years. The work of, I followed the work of Shooter Denmai and, and people like him. Yeah, just balance the channels. But then Monica really got into the eight extra channel combos are very good for the musculoskeletal system. And then his followers got into doing a treatment along the divergent channels. Now, most acupuncturists may have heard of it. They have no idea what it means, or they definitely have no idea of how to use it therapeutically. But the divergent channels are special channels that that join the yin and yang partners, like stomach and spleen or lung and large intestine, and they meet at certain points. And the body uses these to prevent very deep pathogens from getting deep in the body. And so they, they reroute pathogenic chi to its divergent partner and get it out of the body that way. So Monica's followers promoted this divergent treatment. So then SAT was basically a combination of the eight extra and the divergence. He did it by Akabani Jingwell heating up diagnosis, very laborious. And p- people didn't like it, painful. And I said to Mickey, and I said, man, they need a machine that can do this. He says, I know. He says, the Japanese are working on it. So now I've defaulted to the Acograph system. I think you might have heard of it. It's the Meridian Diagnosis System. It's a machine. So it's pretty accurate. and. When I started working with it, I saw that they had Mickey's Divergent 8 Extra program in there. And I said to Adrian, the, the builder of this thing, I said, do you know what you got in here? He says, no, no, no. Some, somebody told me I should put that in if I'm going to put in all these systems. So we just wired it in. And I said, this is Mickey Shiva's SAT therapy. Nobody knew what it was. I saw it, recognized its value. And so I started creating something I call the three-level balance. So the three-level balance works on the primary channels, the eight extras, and the divergence. And the primary channels, of course, work on the chi and the blood. The, the eight extras in Monica's system works on the musculoskeletal system. It's not a Yuan Jing reservoir system. It's an it's a, it's a eight extra. He said, this is what you have in the embryo, and this is what controls the torso, and you can get great results if you do it that way. And then the divergence work on the deeper level, which is the organ relationships. So Mickey called it echo, meso, and endo systems. And I do it. And w- with the acugraph, I can do it. Without the acugraph, no can do. You can't do it by pulses. You can do it by Jing well, but I mean by the- But the again, you're back Akabani. to that Akabani treatment. So what you're looking for, let me see if I'm getting this. What you're looking for is what's deficient, what's excess. Yes. With- the primary 12, the eight extras, and the divergence. Are you looking for all these at the same time, or are you, looking, are you targeting one thing in particular? On the program of this computerized system, all it does is tell you the relationships. It tells you what channels are excess, what channels are weak, and it can quantify that. So the more excess, the more weak, the farther away they are, and so on. In the original system of Akabani, where they they rubbed incense on your Jingwell point. They counted how many strokes before you said it was hot. 
And the more strokes it took, the more weak the channel was. Because mm-hmm. you're actually tonifying the channel with that. Yeah, and you're, they don't feel it because you have to build up the chi. And if it only takes three strokes, it's excess. So that's how they did it originally. Well, now this computer just calculates it, the, the readings and relationships. So the, the machine doesn't say here. Actually, it does. It tells you how, how to prioritize which eight extras to, to treat and which divergence to treat. So it tells you that. The primaries are up to you. You have to look at them and decide what you want to treat. Now, in the Japanese system, they always default to the weakest yin channel. They don't care about the yang channels. They care about the weakest yin channels as being the primaries. And there's a routine in order how to prioritize that. We think most of the excesses are because of the deficiencies. If you tonify the deficiencies, a lot of those excesses will go they away. They just go away all by themselves. Yeah, they self-correct. They, they Exactly, because the system is self-correcting. Right, because the chi is moving through your channels. Every 24 hours, you're getting a complete cycle. So even on the readings, people say, what's out of balance? What's out of balance? What's wrong with me? And I say, it doesn't matter. This is a two-hour snapshot. This is you out of balance right now. In four hours, it's going to be different. But if I see what's out of balance now, I'm going to put that back into balance now. And over the next 24 hours, that'll self-correct. So I want to dig into this just a little bit more because you said divergent channels and divergent channels is one of those things that I remember. I can't even say I studied it in acupuncture school. I would say I was exposed to it. I didn't understand it then. I probably passed a test because I just knew what to say. (laughs) What a good student. There's being a good student. There's knowing how to take a test. And then there's like figuring out what the hell you're actually doing. Yeah. Wisdom versus knowledge. Uh, Wisdom versus knowledge. Yeah. And then there's that in-between place where I feel like I spend most of my life. (laughs) Which is what would you call it? Which is trying to figure shit out. Yeah. Um, But the divergent channels, and I've heard some stuff lately about the divergent channels. I know the Jeffrey Yuren folks that I've talked to on the podcast, they've got their ideas about it. And, uh, but by and large, I don't really get what the divergent channels are. I don't get how you treat them. But when people talk about the divergence, it almost seems like there's some kind of magical thing that goes on with them. There's something really special about the divergences that is different than the eight extras, and it's different than the 12 primaries. So I'd love to get your take on divergent channels, why they're important, what are the kinds of things that they it's like how they physiologically function, what their function is in the body. We're back to our biology here. And then how you treat them and how you know when to treat them. I'm sorry, that's like six questions. I should have just asked one. But That's right. Okay. That's right. You, you put a, a quarter in my ear and I'll just start talking. Great. You know. <laughs> ka-ching. <laughs> yeah, ka-ching. The, the Chinese classics mapped out the divergence. But they never told you what to do with them. They never applied therapy to it. They never applied point control. They they applied points of where they might surface or be controlled, but it's very iffy. They, there isn't a Chinese person out there outside of David Twickham that knows how to use the divergent channels therapeutically. They'll talk the talk. You know, it kills me in Chinese medicine that everybody can talk the talk about the classics, but how does that translate? into practical treatments that benefits the patient. 
right? As Dr. Moon said, just because someone wrote it down 500 years ago doesn't mean it's clinically valuable. It took the Japanese to, to really look at the divergence. It was the Japanese in the 1930s that revived Nanjing acupuncture. It died in China, it, especially modern China. It just died because you know why? I'll tell you why. Because in the 1956, Zhou Enlai, who was number two in the Chinese hierarchy after Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai's wife wanted to be a Chinese TCM doctor. Her mother was a TCM doctor. Her grandmother was a TCM doctor. She came from a family of doctors. Yes. And the revolution destroyed her ambition. She was on the long march. And, you know, finally, her husband's number two, 1956. And she says, you got to create some TCM hospitals. And they did. And so she was the push that made TCM hospitals and, and universities come into being. She was the one. And all the people of her generation used TCM. On the long march, they didn't have Western medicines. They used TCM. They loved TCM. When I studied in Beijing at 87, Deng Xiaoping's family was coming to the hospital to get treated. So, so they put the herbalists in charge. TCM was herbal medicine. Zongfu is herbal medicine. Eight categories is herbal medicine. Yes, it is. It totally, 100%. At that time, there was lots of styles in China. It was like Taiwan. You had family styles that have disappeared. They survived in Taiwan and Korea and Japan and you know Hong Kong. But they didn't survive in China, not because they were suppressed and the commies were bad guys who were going to destroy all this great Chinese medicine. It wasn't like that at all. It was all very practical. They put the herbalists in charge, and the herbalists looked at acupuncture, and they said, well, there's lots of acupuncture systems, but only this particular style dovetails with what we do, TCM acupuncture. Dovetails what we do. And instead of teaching five curriculums, we're going to teach one curriculum. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Because they had to get doctors trained up and out to work because, you know, <laughs> they needed doctors back then, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Oh, more than you know. More than you know. So so that's why TCM acupuncture, eight-category acupuncture, became TCM acupuncture because the herbalists were dictating the terms. 
and the, the family styles disappeared. And, and, and it got to a point after a number of decades that that's what everybody believes in China. This is acupuncture. You know, so they see like Master Tong style. Well, now they're looking at it and they're going, that's interesting. But 10 years ago, they didn't think it was interesting. They didn't want to know about acupuncture from Japan. They still don't want to know about acupuncture from Japan. There's a lot of history and culture with that one. A lot of baggage. A lot of baggage. A lot of baggage. And yep. I, I, it's understandable. Okay. The Chinese have their experience of the Japanese during World War II was the same as Jewish people with the Nazis, you know, and the Japanese killed more Chinese than the Nazis killed, you know, and that's the truth. And, and so the Chinese don't forget. And the people that went through that don't forget. So they'll take their cars, they'll take their Toyotas, but they don't want any friendliness. You know, now things are changing now because everybody's younger. It's different now. Well, but, the, you know, I mean, the worlds do change and they mix and they morph and, I mean, it's always curious to me how the enemy of a couple decades ago is the uh, yeah, you know, partner, partner now. And, yeah, and the people that was our partner 10 years ago, and now we're throwing that dude in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. so anyway, the, the, the Japanese were the ones who revitalized divergence channel treatment based on Menaka had feedback systems to see if what he was doing was correct. Monica was a medical doctor. He, he wanted proof and he he wanted evidence that was re repetitive. Re what do they call it? You know, repeatable, reproducible. Yeah. And what he did was he felt that acupuncture channels changed tensions in the abdomen and the torso significantly that anyone could confirm that, that this torque here of the channels would cause this hardness here in the abdomen. And he mapped it out. He mapped it out. And also plus the back shoe points, palpation responses, and everything he proved was based on palpation response, plus, of course, clinical efficacy. But he was these guys were very good in palpation, and they could prove what they were proposing. So first, Monica comes up with eight extra channels and showed that eight extra channel torques would torque the torso in certain ways that anyone trained in the system would confirm. He'd ask 10 people, what do you see here? Oh, I see this pattern. Right. That's what you see because that's what's there. And then he, he trained this group called the Topological Society, and they took his stuff further. They wanted to know what devices would work. They invented the intradermal needle. They invented magnet therapy. They invented laser therapy. They, invented, they wanted to know what things will fix this problem. That's cool. So they've got a basic palpatory findings that any that's reproducible. It's associated with certain kinds of issues. And then you go look at, well, what are the kinds of things that can treat this? Yeah. And there's all exactly. kinds of things. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. Monica himself invented the iron pumping cord, which will move excess to deficiency. And his, a lot of his work was with this. And that's what I use now. My, my three-level balance involves iron pumping cords. So he invented that based on his experience in the war. With burn victims, he would put aluminum foil over the burn and then with the clips transfer it to somewhere else in the body to reduce the heat on the burn. And it actually made the burns heal much faster using this cord. So that started him in his so-called research. He always couches it in terms of research and evidence and, and so on. And then his followers were taught those methods and they just discovered all sorts of stuff including computerized testing, 
Rotoraku was the, the original testing of the meridian imbalances. So what's Monica's take on the divergences? Nothing. It was his followers. Nothing. Ah, his okay. Fo- his followers are the ones that clued into it. Right. So what they, do they say about it? Well, they looked at the classics. They saw how it was mapped out. They took the Chinese explanations of what they did. And then they wanted to know, how can I use this therapeutically? And they came up with these combinations of her C points and neck and face points to make the balance. That every pair, like lung and large intestine or gallbladder and liver, will meet higher up in the torso, either around the neck or the face. And so he would... He wanted to make them equal. He wanted liver and gallbladder to be similar. He wanted lung and large intestine to be similar. And when they weren't, they could palpate that. And so then they would fix it by taking both, actually by just taking one point, whatever the dominant bad one was, but the face points would be where they would meet. So you would have lung and large intestine meet at a certain point. And they would use ion pumping cords to move that to the C point of the worst of the two pairs. So you're taking, again, we're taking the excess yeah. and moving it to the deficiency. Basically. Which very meridian style idea. We're going we're gonna to tonify what's deficient, but we're also pulling excess away from where you don't need it. So you're actually getting a two for one with this. <laughs> right? Because totally. you're draining the excess and you're tonifying the deficiency at the same time. And Monica said, if you use the iron pumping cords, that balance will be made in 10 minutes. You know, that that's done. It's a short treatment. It's done. Can you, you over-treat know- people with this if you're not no, careful? No. Nah, okay. All right. Nah, nah. Just checking. It's impossible. But you can over-treat with meridian therapy. If you sedate a channel too long, then you're going to deplete it. So you want to be careful with sedation. Right. So like when five element people do acupuncture and they think they're tonifying, but they use very strong needle technique and it hurts. And when you hurt a point, the energy will rush to the surface, to the point of pain. So you're sedating. Fukushima, one of the great Meridian people said, if it, if it hurts, you've sedated. Now, sometimes that's fine. That's what you want to do. But if you're trying to tonify a point and you hurt it, you will not make the effect that you want. This is why five element, if they're using painful needles, and they all do because they never learned the Japanese needle technique, they're sedating instead of tonifying. You know, they think they're tonifying, but they're not. <laughs> so, so Jing wells are notoriously difficult to uh, get and a needle into. With you don't use them. We don't use them. We use them to bleed. We use the Chinese method. You know, bleeding Jing wells are excellent for pain. Moxing Jing well is excellent for tonification. You know, yeah. But we don't use needles on Jing wells. All right. So I want to come back to these divergence again for just a moment because it's one of these things that's been like running around in the back of my mind for like a while. And and so I just I just want to dig a little bit more in because it's hard to find people that can talk about divergences because, you know, again, most people had the kind of training I did. It's all speculative. Uh-huh. What they're saying about them. They don't know what they're talking about. They know what and where, but they don't know why or what, you know, they, they know where, but not what. <laughs> where, but what. Yeah. And then there's of, of course the how. So 
let's look at from the point of view of, I'm going to call it pathology, air quotes pathology, but it's actually physiology. So, so the Jingwell, not the Jingwells, the divergences, their job is to grab and channel like some kind of an assault that's coming into the body and like divert it somewhere. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. What's so coming it, in, the main thing they're worried about are external pathogens, pathogenic chi that has worked its way into the interior. Okay. So can you give me an example of what that would look like in, in someone in your clinic? Well, even just using six stages, let's say you get a pathogenic chi attack in your surface, okay? And the body, and it goes through Taiyang, and then it goes through Shaiyang, and then it goes to Yang Ming, and then it goes into the internal organs, right? Then it goes into Taiyin, Shaoyin, Jueyin. That pathogenesis, if it lodges in the deeper organs and those yin stages, that's bad for the organs. The organs don't have Wei Qi as much as the surface does. So most doctors want to expel the pathogens when they're on the surface, you know, or at least in the Shaoyang. Sure. I mean, I mean, that's why the Taiyang chapter of the Shanghai Lun is so long. Yeah. Right? Because the idea is like, keep it out, and then you don't have to deal with it when it goes way deep into the body. Correct. Once it's very deep, it's very hard to it's push hard. out. Hard yeah. to push out with herbs, hard to pull out with acupuncture. So the idea of divergence is usually one of the pairs more affected than the other. The first thing that hap- that divergence do is take pathogenic excess off of its partner and tries to get some of it into itself. You know, that's one of its main jobs is to take the load off the internal partner. Now, that what the acupuncture does technically is helps helps to I don't know, I can't say it pushes it out, but it regulates it in such a way that it's not pathogenic anymore. And it's one way of dealing with pathogenic factors and even what they call hidden pathogens. They've gone deep in the body and the deeper channels have been affected. And I think everybody agrees on that, Chinese and Japanese. Well, I mean, like you're saying, there's some speculation here. Would you say that things go to the divergences and stay there? Or is there some way that the divergences can transform this and kind of move it through? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. What do you do if you don't treat it? What happens? Yeah, well, a lot of people will say you'll get chronic problems in that organ or you'll get you know these hidden pathogens that just stay deep. I know that when I do the three-level balance and first we do the primaries, then we do the eight extras, then we do the divergence, even Mickey Shima said, if you do the eight extras first, you're going to drive the pathogen deeper in. You know, If you don't do it first, if you do divergence first, you're going to drive, I don't know. But anyway... The three levels, I think, rectifies everything. It just purifies the chi. You have to think that the chi is disharmonic. It's, it's vibratory. It's disharmonic. It has a pathogenic vibration. And what the good acupuncture will do is smooth out that pathogenic vibration. And so if you've got the 12 regular channels working well, okay, systems harmonized there. You get the eight extras. They're all working well. Then you could do something with these divergences and you've, and you've got, it's like there's room to move. The system is more attuned and it's stronger. And so at this point, it can like take on that issue. It's like, I think about trauma, people that have, you know, had some sort of, you know, like deep trauma. I mean, that, that can stay buried for years and you can't get to that old trauma until you kind of like regulate a person's nervous system enough that they can deal with their everyday life and maybe deal with a previous relationship and then go back to, you know, a, a deeper underlying thing. 
I don't know. I'm speculating here. Maybe it's something like that. Well, there's two aspects. I mean, I don't know about will this treatment push out the pathogenic cheek. I don't know. But I do know that it's very good for healing the organs, that the mm-hmm. divergent channels heal the organs. Okay. I know we're going to wrap up soon. I, I want to just encourage acupuncturists, if they're interested in meridian therapy, to practice meridian qigong. And what meridian qigong means is you bring the energy into your dantian, then you bring it up to the beginning of your lung channel, and you move it down your lung, then you flip it over, move it up your large intestine, both sides, then down your stomach, up your spleen, et cetera. If you do the 12 rounds, three rounds of 12, you will purify your energy. Like, so this is why I don't get jet lag. This is why I don't get sick. This is why I don't get headaches. I just do three rounds of this chi movement in sequence. Now, I also have qigongs for eight extras, but for the primaries, it's the most important. Now, is this with actual movements over the meridians? or is Not or is, necessarily. Just use your mind. Just use you your can mind. Move, qigong. Yeah, you can, you can move your limbs. You can move your limbs, follow the qi, open up, do what you want. The main thing is the mind is leading it in an unbroken movement of inhale, exhale. You know, And three rounds of that will make a headache go away. Three rounds of that will stop jet lag. And you'll always remember the meridian flow. <laughs> well, that's important. Uh, yes. I mean, yes. meridians to me are very internal. Yun Tiao Ma, who invented dry needling, he's the, the force behind dry needling. A lovely man, just a wonderful Chinese trained acupuncturist who doesn't believe in meridians. He just believes in local effect. He says, well, why do you believe? I, I said, but I believe in meridians. He said, why do you believe in meridians? He said, it's old fashioned. I said, I believe it because I do meridian qigong and I feel it. I feel it. I feel the channels opening up. I, I'll never, no one could ever convince me meridians don't exist. Well, and if, yeah. and if you've got a headache and you do something and the headache goes away, Right. Oh, okay. Now I've got at least some anecdotal proof and of one study. You do that a few times <laughs> and it seems to work. No, I mean, yeah. N of, all of our work is N of one studies, right? Yeah. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. 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 Great. I have thoroughly enjoyed this time with you. Thank you Thank so you. much for, for, for joining me today. I've got just one last question before we uh, say goodbye for now. I'm curious to know what is the most surprising thing that your practice over this past 40 years has taught you. The most surprising thing or yeah. the most rewarding thing? Oh, you know what? I like that. That's a great question. What's the most rewarding thing that your practice has given you? <laughs> is that acupuncture works. That acupuncture works. I see it working all the time. I go, wow, why don't doctors know this? This is so easy to fix. Like uh, like ileocecal valve or hiatal hernia. I said, this is a one treatment fix. I mean, well, why are they not seeing it? They put them on antacids for years and it's so easy to fix. You know, not everything's easy to fix, by the way. But acupuncture, continual acupuncture, no matter what style, all these acupunctures are helping people. Every time a patient comes to me and said, well, I had acupuncture. And I said, did it help? And they all say, yes. I've ne- really, except you know what doesn't help? Dry needling. Well, I, I mean, sometimes acupuncture doesn't help too. I understand um, that that might be why they're in your office. But I mean, generally speaking, I suspect most of us wouldn't be doing our work if we didn't feel like we were being helpful. Yeah. So it's working at least that well. 
people ask me, what is dry needling? And I go, oh, it's acupuncture without training. <laughs> yeah, we could get into that one too, but we'll just That's give it a pass for the moment. That's another one. Yeah. All right, Jake. I, I would just like to flag my website if people are interested. Yeah, yeah, please. How, how can people find you? And My um, website is at drjakefratkin.com. D-R-J-A-K-E-F-R-A-T-K-I-N. No periods until the dot com. Yeah, I got so many articles on there that people can read, how to muscle test, uh, everything. Coronavirus, how to treat it, you know, yeah. I'll make sure that this is on the show notes page so people can just okay. click right over to it. And then if there's right. any other, like, really interesting articles you want to highlight, send me the link for those. I'll make sure they're up there as well. Okay. All Good. Right. Jake, thanks yeah, so well, much. Thank you. It was fun. The first hour was the best part. My <laughs> <laughs> when we had technological problems. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.